Hey, I'm Simba Kader, and you're listening to the MLOps Weekly Podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Bob Van Lout, the CEO of Semi Technologies, which are the creators of Weaviate. Bob spent the majority of his career working on open source, and now he's fully focused on building an open source vector database. Bob, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Simba. It's great to be here. So I gave a little intro on you, but I'd love to hear your journey. Like, How did you get into MLOps? Yeah, so it uh, depends a little bit how far you want to go back, but I've, I'm working in software for like a very long time. So the, the story that I always like to tell is that I'm, uh, I'm a, an, early, an early millennial. So I kind of grew up with the, with the internet. It was like when I was born, it wasn't really there yet, but it was like when I was like 10 years old or something. We got it in the home. And at some point when I was like in high school, actually, and this is just a, you know, the standard story, right? So I make a few websites, those kind of things. And somebody's like, Hey, I need a website. And then, you know, you can charge some money for that. And then that is, that is how that, how that started. And that is how, how my career basically grew. So now, you know, fast forward uh, a few years in, in the future, I was very intrigued by everything that was happening in, in from an NLP perspective. So with word to vac and a little bit later fast text, but before transformers. So it's like in that in that in between, that time in between. And that was really from a from a software perspective, or dare I say, maybe with a, like a hacker mindset. So I was like, yeah, how can I use this? How can I solve problems with this? And one of the problems that I was struggling with was the problem like, how do I deal with data objects that are similar in um, in nature, but don't describe things in the same way. So I was back then working actually on an IoT-related project where I got data in from different vendors that talked about the same stuff that was, from a semantic perspective, similar, but was, you know, was described differently. And I was playing around with calculating centroids in, back then, just individual word vectors. And out of that, the idea was born... Like, hey, wait a second, maybe we can actually store data based on these on these vectors. And actually in the early days, and those who go back to the to the Weaviate repo and go back in history can actually see that we tried to do that in other databases. And then I met my co-founder, HN, and HN said, like, hey, wait a second. I actually think that a, a database that's really optimized for doing this well specifically for vectors and maybe later in the in during the conversation we, we can talk about why that is the case. And I started to become more interested in everything that's surrounded like maybe a little bit more from like a product perspective, you know, go to market marketing, those kind of things. So with a with a small team we started to work on on Weaviate. And that's actually how it's how it's born. So we came from this software engineering background, believing that the whole you know, depends how you call it, but ML first or AI first or however you want to call it, approach to solving problems with software was being the, the you know the next big thing. And that's how we ended up in this in this space. So it's it's not a data science background, but really like a software background. So that's uh, well I guess that's the almost short answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna jump into the the you know we talked about vectors and embeddings. I remember when I first kind of learned about word to vec and use it for the first time and really dug in. Um, you know, my background being in recommender systems, I remember creating user embeddings, item embeddings, all kinds of different types of embeddings. And just finding these techniques, like, kind of magical. But I think a lot of people, even in data science, maybe don't fully 
understand what embedding or, or vectors, as, as, as we're calling it, is. How would you define that? There's one word that resonates very well with me, and that is you use the word magical. And I sometimes use this exact same word because there's something there's something innately beautiful in working with with embeddings, in my opinion. So there's like this this famous example with these word embeddings where you do that calculation that I believe it goes like king minus man plus woman or something is queen it does like the example that they that they give and it does analogies like it's able to take analogies and fit them into spatial coordinates i remember we had one so the you know the, the famous one is the the king is to man as queen is to woman there's also like like you know paris is to france as you know yes. dc is to the u.s so it does a lot of these really interesting things i've actually uh Myself, I've been able to see it do that for really interesting analogies. One analogy we built once was it was Diet Coke is to Coke as Coca-Cola Zero is to Cherry Coke. And oh, when wow. I saw that, I like was like, oh, that makes sense, but I can't explain why. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and that exactly, so that what you just described, that was something that I hadn't had for a long time in working with software. So I remember the first time I had it when I was like 10 years old or something. That's also the, like the, almost like the cliche story. So you have an old machine. It has, uh, we had QBasic. And then the first time, you know, having like input, what is your name? And then I did Bob and then said like, hi, Bob. That I was like, whoa. And I felt like that 10-year-old kid again when I started to work with these with these embeddings. And because I didn't come from the data science background, I had to, you know, reverse engineer my mind, like how these things work and where they're coming from, and learn what they not only could do for NLP, but also images and 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 just, you know, data in general. And when I got that and got that understanding, I was like, oh wow, this is I really believe that this is an amazing opportunity because I was back then very much interested in the semantic web. And that was just one thing that just kept like, it was like, I wouldn't say annoying because annoying is the wrong word, but it was like this one thing that just kept like this problem that kept popping up. And that was the thing like that people couldn't agree on stuff, right? How to call stuff. And I was like, oh, this is like these these embeddings, they they gonna help us solve the problem. That was back then how I looked at it. And and of course now that is more sophisticated and that grew further, but it just was so clear to me that placing stuff in whatever the data is that you're having, regardless of the NLP related image, whatever, place it in a vector space and then having a search engine that is good at helping you navigating, re-ranking, reorganizing fetching, whatever, from vector space, I think that's the future. And and that is a so so that that's how I yeah, that's how I look at that. And and that is why it just, you know, grabbed my attention. Totally. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I know like when I talk about embeddings, like one thing I was, you know, supposed to when I talk to people who don't know what embedding is, I try to help them imagine like, hey, think of a movie, you know, let's say, or you know, or think of your buying behavior on Amazon. Think of what you, or wherever you buy. Like you can't describe it in a sentence or a word, right? Like it's typically it's like, yeah, like sometimes like I buy a lot of clothes, but you know, sometimes I buy like 
know, stuff from my laptop or I buy a speaker. So it just, there's a lot of noise, a lot of randomness. And one way is just call the randomness, call the noise, just like make it very like, you know, once if it's like this person buys clothes. But embeddings, I think, are so magical because they're able to capture the whole of the person and kind of, the, the again, the semantic, like, like, who is this person? How do they do things? How do they think about this? And somehow put that into a vector. And it sounds, the vector alone is like useless, but the vector in space of other vectors is where it becomes interesting because the analogies, the similarities come up. And the other thing is you can start to train models with embeddings, like multimodal. We used to do a ton of that, where it's like, hey, take the user embedding, plug it into a ranking model, and just use the user embedding as opposed to using the, this, the user ID or whatever else you're going to do. I've seen a lot of big companies actually create embeddings teams to try mm. to like centralize embeddings and actually use embeddings, you know, the same embeddings, like have one user embedding or like a handful of user embeddings that they use across organization just to like kind of pepper onto models that use user data and see if it makes it better. No, that's actually what you're saying is super interesting. And I, so there, if I may, there are two things that I, that I would like to add to that. So I really like the analogy that you're using. So the metaphor that I, that I often use when I explain them is a supermarket. So they go, if, it's like if you have a shopping list and the shopping list says, I need apples, bananas, and washing powder then intuitively you know that if you found apples in the, the space, the three-dimensional space that is the supermarket, uh, you know intuitively that bananas are going to be closer by than the washing powder. And the, the, the more you move towards the washing powder, the further you move, move away from the fruit section. And I said, basically, one, we're doing that in a digital space. Secondly, because it's digital, we don't have to limit ourselves to three dimensions. So we can give more context in these, these hyper-dimensional space. And I said, and the last thing is like, we have these models that help us, you know, learn these representations and representations and place them in space. The second thing that I wanted to say is what I find very interesting, what you're saying is like that I think that's something we will also be seeing is that we now reason a lot through the model. So we say, okay, we have a piece of data, we run it, we do inference on a model and we store these factory representations. We want to do similarity search, search through them, et cetera, done. That's definitely going to stay. I think that we're actually going to see a lot of algorithms and computations on the vectors in the database. So, for example, calculating real-time centroids to buy certain search results and those kind of things, something that you can't per se do with the model, but that you can do in the database as well. So I really believe that we're going to move to this world where people just start to play around, manipulate, organize and data from the perspective of the embedding regardless if that it starts from inference on a model, but then it just can, you know, live a life of its own. It's a really interesting point. And it's, it's funny because it's actually ex almost exactly what we did to my last company. And what we did was we create user embeddings and we cluster them and we call those clusters personas. And so we would have many millions of users and we were trying to figure out why users would subscribe. Like if you subscribe to the New York Times, like why do you subscribe to the New York Times? So we would, you know, you look at individual users, it's not really useful. You can try to look at all the users at once, but that doesn't work either because there's just so many different types of users and there's not really one thing that's true across them, typically. Like there are some, but it's very, it's not enough. So the trick was, well, we need like a better microscope. So we would just cluster embeddings and we'd create all these personas and then learn off of the personas. And that was like kind of where our breakthroughs came from. So I can totally see that happening 
I mean, I, I think that's kind of the future of most machine learning is going to be like multimodal embeddings, like based. I 100% agree with that. And it's it's so interesting that you bring this up because that use case that you're describing, similar use cases to that, that is really where we see that the power of like the combination of the models and in this case, the vector search engine that we're working on, where it shines. So we have on our website, on our documentation, we have like every example has a real life demo, which is based on news articles. And we have one example in the documentation where you can say, show me articles about traveling, I believe that it is. Just show me articles about traveling. But what you now can do is you can say, well, the previous article that I read was about Japan. So then you say, okay, I do inference on the model on the query for traveling. So I get an embedding back. Then I take the embedding from the database about this article about Japan. And then I bias the search results towards Invectus page towards that article. And what's happening now, news articles of traveling in Japan or, or to you know, other countries in Asia pop up first. And doing that real time for users on a large scale, that's basically, that's the problem we solve. And I really believe that that's going to be the future of search. So I, I want to jump into vector databases and that, but I guess before we jump off of the embeddings topic, for someone who's listening, I mean, uh, we kind of went over at a high level, but there's so much there. If someone's listening and we're like, oh, this stuff sounds like super cool, how do I learn more? What would you recommend they do to learn about embeddings? So that depends a little bit of what your background is. So if your background is in the really in the data science space and you're coming out of that, then then I can't really help because that's not my background. But if you if you have my background, so you come more from the software engineering space, I would highly recommend just start to play around with these embeddings. Just learn by doing. So regardless if you use a service like, you know, get a bunch of embeddings from OpenAI or you use your own model coming from Hugging Face, just loading them in in whatever in your language of choice, having an array of these embeddings based on a sentence or an image, start to play around with them, start to compare them like we just described, like with single words, with sentences, those kind of things. Then just get that feeling of how, how it works because it's it's different than traditional keyword-based search. That is what I would suggest. So because you don't have to train these models anymore, you just can, can get a bunch of them off the shelf. So I would argue, go to Hugging Face, go to OpenAI, go to Cohere, wherever you want to go to get your embeddings from. Load a bunch of them in just a little piece of software and start to work with them, start to play around with them because... They're just distance calculations that you need to do. And within 10, 20 minutes, you're up and running and you can experience that same magic that we just described. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I remember actually your analogy of the grocery store reminds me of one of the first projects I built with embeddings, which was I would allow you to put in two songs and I would try to find a song in the middle of those two songs. Mm. It was really funny because, you know, if you did songs that are similar, like it would find the cool, that would be a good recommender. But sometimes you would do some really weird things like, oh, there's like a pop song and like a metal song. Like what will appear on? It was always really funny. It wasn't always accurate, but it was like really a fun project. Yeah, and actually, if I may add one more thing. Mm-hmm. So I think, so this, of course, all a lot of here of this stuff is born, of course, in research. And if you dive in the research first, you get into the role of like, that you need like, I don't know, re-rankers or you get into certain uh, model benchmarks or you get into fine-tuning 
then you're not experiencing that magic first. So the example you just gave, I love that, right? So build a simple music recommendation tool or something like that, because if you do that, you're experiencing the beauty of it, and then you can go into the research and learn more about it. But I would highly recommend, you know, put on your hacker hat and just start building. Totally, yeah. Getting that magic feeling is what's going to like let you make it through the research because it can get pretty uh, heavy. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, let's talk about vector databases. So we talked about embeddings. Embeddings are great. You're definitely like similarity search. Obviously, is a key component of it. But I guess maybe the first question is just what is a vector database? Yeah, sure. So then first let's look at the second word, database. A database comes in, in, in many flavors, right? So you have databases that are good at doing time series. You have databases that are good at doing graph, making graph relations and those kind of things. And you have databases that are good at search. So we focus on search. So we say this of the flavor, the database of the flavor search engine. Then we sp- specifically focus on working with, with vector embeddings. So we call it a vector search engine. So we've hit it's definitely a database, but we, we position it as saying like it's a vector search engine because it's very descriptive of what it does. I think that, for example, in my opinion, feature stores are, is, are also a form of database. So you could argue that they're also a form of like vector databases. So that is why I, I like, I very much like the term feature store because it's very descriptive in what it does. So long answer to your question, but so a, um, a vector database is often actually a search engine and, and focusing on vectors first. So it's a vector search engine. I kind of answer this, but just for, for those listening, you know, when I was working with embeddings, it was before any vector database existed, at least to my knowledge. And we used to use Phase and Annoy, Phase being Facebook's similarity index and Annoy being Spotify's. What's the difference? Like, when when you need the vector database, when we use phase and noi, is there a difference? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. So a database has a specific definition, right? So, and one thing that you want to have for the database is that you want to have CRUD support. Create, read, update, delete. And not all of these, they often, they're called ANN libraries. So they're not databases, they're libraries. So sometimes these libraries, they get their optimization, for example, from building as an immutable index. So now you have the problem that if you have real-time data, so think, for example, that you have a website with reviews and you want to add a review or you want to delete a review, you have to rebuild the whole index. Might be problematic. Another way to look at it is that these databases, you want to scale them, right? So they're built, you want to have horizontal scalability, you want to have replication, you want to guarantee uptimes, you want to, if they go down, you want them to restore themselves, those kind of things. I sometimes say you could compare it with how Lucene sits at the heart of something like Solar or Elasticsearch. But now from the perspective of ANN, and one thing that we've learned, not, not only us, also others in this space learned, is that you probably don't want to take an ANN library because then you can't solve these things like CRUD and scalability down the line. You want to take an ANN algorithm because certain ANN algorithms are very well suited to build ANN databases with. So that is the big difference. If you need a database that can run in production and do database-like operations, 
then you want to go for an a vector database. If you have a cool research project or, or what have you, and you just want to quickly just load something, embed something in your Python script and get it up and running, by all means, use a great ANN library. Yeah, I, I I like the the way I used to or the way I thought about it, especially like an, our kind of project embedding hub on this was it's an index versus a database. Like if I give you a B tree, that's not Postgres, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's how I think of it. And if I may add something to that as well, is that and this is really our our vision on where this is going because you know everybody in the space solves problems in a different way. We have learned that purely doing vector search is a great starting point for to solve a use case, but by no means the end of the use case. So, for example, mixing vector search with keyword search or BM25 search, helping in re-ranking of the search results coming from vector space, we believe that those are operations that should be part of the database. And that is how we build Reviate. So, Weave just doesn't simply build like a vector index. That's just one of the things that it does. It also works with inverted indexes. It mixes them together. It makes sure that you can do regulate like pre and post filtering. One of the big tricks here, and this is important for people to know, is that the first iterations of this with more traditional databases was that you could do vector search post filter. So the problem was you first had to get your candidates in a traditional way from the database and then in a post filter, apply vector search. Problem was, how do you know what you need to get from vector space? Because you don't know that. So all these kind of things combined are solved inside the database and then giving a great UX how people can add data and retrieve data. That is where a lot of that value comes from the, from the database. So yes, these ANN libraries has been, have been super important because they were the first to implement these algorithms. But we really believe that the next step is like the actual full-fledged database that comes with everything that comes that you you know that you would expect from a database as opposed to just a library. Could you go into that more? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but when you say like the next step being, I guess, more of a database functionality, can you maybe even give a story or something of like, oh, like this is something that the database did that changed how you know people worked with embeddings? Yeah, sure. Let me answer this based on an example, because I think that's that's easiest, right? So let's say that I have a database with products, right? So I have I have like a, a million products. I create vector embeddings for these products and I load them in the database. Now the first thing is that products change, right? So you want to update a project, you want to remove a product, add more products, those kind of things. You want to do that real time. So this is the first thing where the database adds value. So that's just in storing the data and you know have you just having your traditional CRUD operations on the data. That's one. Secondly, the thing is like now if we start to query, then initially you might say, okay, let's say that I have a query that goes like, show me Adidas shoes for the summer. If I vectorize the query Adidas shoes for the summer, I do my candidate selection in vector space, then there will probably also be Nike shoes in there for the summer. Or there might be Pumas in there for the summer as well. So purely doing that factor search and presenting these results to the end users is great because you now might also make matches on where there are no keyword matches. So these Adidas shoes are great during spring and even if you search for on the summer, but there also might be Nike shoes in there. So now the second thing that you want from such a database is that it says like, oh, wait a second, 
I want to mix in other ways of filtering like traditional uh, wear filters or BM25 filters. But I'm going to say, okay, Adidas is actually very important. So I'm going to do a hybrid search. So in the candidate selection, I'm going to filter out everything that says Nike or I'm going to bias up everything that says Adidas. So that is the second added value that you get from that. And then thirdly, you might have certain real-time operations that you say like, well, maybe Simba, you might have a cart that is full of running gear and I might have a cart that is full of basketball gear. So if you now both have the exact same query with the exact same factor, uh, factor Adidas shoes for the summer, and we do get this from vector space and we include this, for example, our BM25 search in there, we might actually want to bias your results to Adidas shoes for the summer towards like running gear and and my towards basketball shoes. All these kind of operations, people want to do that real time and they want to do that on a, on a high scale. So we see like QPSs of well into the thousands in uh, users that we have. So that is then the fourth thing that's actually that you operationalize these kind of things. And all that combined and probably more in the future is what all comes together inside the database and not like in a library or purely in algorithm. I love that example. It's really interesting to see how, yeah, like the, the basic use of embeddings is one thing, like oh, it's a similarity search, but embeddings, the power really comes in when you start using them and using like combining them over types of models, over types of algorithms. And, you know, you talked about, you know, the future of that things will keep growing in that direction. When we talk about the past, we've talked a little bit about it. You know, it used to be just Elasticsearch and then it became and indices, and then now there's kind of the vector database boom. What's what's next? What's the future look like for this space in, let's say, a few years? So there's one big assumption. So this is, I'm, when I say the assumption, I think both of us are going to be very biased towards what the outcome of that assumption is, but there's one big assumption. And that assumption is that the world, so developers, data scientists, even like people working on digital products, everybody, the world is moving towards a place where we want to do stuff, what I like to call AI first, which practically means we work with these embeddings and these models and these vectors, right? So we need to have the tooling that helps us to easily, you know, have a, have a great UX and, and allow us to easily work with these, with these tools. So the, the first part of my answer is that I think that, you know, I believe in, in that that future will be ML first, right? That, that's one thing. Then the second thing is that, and, and we talked about this earlier in the conversation, is that I think that a lot of operations on the embeddings will be done without inference on any models. So the example that I just gave about the, the e-commerce example, if I want to bias results for you towards running and for me towards basketball, that's an operation we can do without touching a model ever. Why is that? Uh, uh, important, that's important because it's fast. So we can scale that. So now you can have like real-time search and recommendations for big e-commerce stores just out of the box. Uh, that's one thing. And then secondly, what I think, I'm a big believer in innovation through engineering. And one thing that we're seeing is like, you know, we, we hit certain, I wouldn't say limitations, but more like challenges that for really big data sets, you know, that these databases are still a little bit like memory intensive, those kind of things. 
So we currently have a research team that's working on everything that you would expect, like, you know, working from disk and those kind of things and, and optimize inference and, and what can we do in the database there as well. So we will also see that these databases will get significantly better and easier to, well, I wouldn't say easier to operate, but cheaper to operate. So it's just, you know, it just gets relatively cheap at some point to just have a high quality vector search engine uh, like we've had up and running. And I think we're going to see that soon. So like, not like in 10 years, but like a year from now. One thing I've, you've written about before is the AI first database ecosystem. Um, and you, you just touched on it for a second, but could you elaborate? Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. So that's, that's an article I wrote. And the reason why I wrote that article is because probably like yourself, you know, we often need to answer the question like, why, where do you sit in this whole landscape? And if you, for example, come up with a great idea to compete with, I don't know, with Snowflake or any other data warehouse that you have, like, or Cassandra, what have you, then everybody instantly gets like, okay, you know, we know you're like a data warehouse, you do something more efficient, something faster, or a combination of these kind of things. That's like, you don't have to explain the space. People go like, okay, I get what a data warehouse does. Okay, great. Good for you. In our case, that's a little bit different because that space now starts to emerge. So we need to be able to have the right words and the right syntax and the right nomenclature to, to talk about that space. And I wrote that article to describe how I see that space, and I basically divide the space into four sections. So the first section is what I call the embedding providers. Those who make sure that we have these embeddings that can be OpenAI, that can be Hugging Face, that can be Cohere, all these kind of players that, that do that, right? And can be open source, can be SaaS-based, can be a combination of both. doesn't matter. It's just those who make sure that we can do inference, that we get the models and that we can do inference on the models. That's one. Then the second group that I identify is um, uh, the groups that these, these companies call themselves, that they create neural search frameworks. So those are the like the scissors, the hammers and scissors to work with these models. If you maybe want to do fine tuning, if you want to maybe have a specific pipeline to do something when you do inference, those kind of things, right? So those are the, the neural search frameworks. Then we have something which is the data warehouse equivalent for the for the features, right? So the feature store. So what if I want to store a bunch of them? What if I want to make them available in my company for people to use that they don't have to train these models all by themselves or whatever you do on a large scale with them, right? So these are the feature stores. And then lastly is what I call the, the vector search engines, which is a flavor of a database, but again, I, I prefer to call them search engines because it's very descriptive. And that's, for example, where we sit. So we make sure that you can do search on them. So you index data, you can make it real-time available. So these four groups I've identified, and together they make up this AI-first ecosystem. That's what I mean when I talk about that um, AI-first ecosystem. Yeah, I love it. It's almost like a lot of MLOps and a lot of machine learning, when people think about MLOps, it's relatively simple. Like, embeddings don't come in. If, you know, we both know if you go to many, many companies. I mean, like, it used to just be the most cutting-edge companies. Nowadays, it's like most companies do something with embeddings. And so there almost needs to be this other pipeline of embeddings. And like, you know, like a feature store is a good example of something that hits kind of both sides and it kind of creates that eventual combination and it just all kind of comes together to, like you said, like the AI first ecosystem. I really like that. When I read that, I was like, oh, like, this is really a new way for me to think about it. So we'll link that article for anyone who wants to dig in 
Well, last thing, if you had to give like a tweet wave takeaway, like someone kind of listening to this for like, man, like I want to know what to like tell my team about this in a tweet, what would you think your takeaway would be or their takeaway should be? So I think this fits exactly in a tweet. Go to weaviate.io, spin up a Docker container, give it a go and experience that magic. We'll have a lot of links for things to, for people to look at through this. Bob, thanks so much for hopping on and having this great conversation with me. It's always great to be able to chat with you about this stuff. Yeah, and, and again, thanks for having me and I love what you guys are working on. So just keep up the good work and let's build that ecosystem together. Sounds great.